Hebrews 2, verses 10 to 18. And let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, even as we have just sung, we do long for the day when our faith is sight. We long for the day when Christ returns. And even this morning as we gather here, Heavenly Father, we proclaim, even so, come Lord Jesus. May that day be even today. And yet until that day, even here on earth, we will continue to proclaim, all glory be to Christ. Heavenly Father, even this morning as we look at this passage, we will proclaim, all glory be to Christ. Even as we focus on the incarnation, and we see what Christ has accomplished for us, and what that means for us, may you be honored in all that is said and done. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let them eat cake. It's a famous saying from history. It's probably one that you're familiar with. It's a famous phrase attributed to the wife of King Louis XVI, Marie Antoinette, during an intense family, famine. Historically, it's not likely that she actually said it, but it is a phrase that has become associated with her in this time in history. The story goes that upon being informed that the peasants had nothing to eat, Marie Antoinette dismissively uttered this now infamous phrase, well, let them eat cake, showing the complete disconnect between the reality of the wealthy and the poor. As if the problem was just that they did not have fancy food to eat. Okay, well then just let them eat cake. Let them eat bread. Let them eat the everyday things. She could not fathom in her mind that the reality was that they had nothing to eat. While the peasants were starving to death, the wealthy locked in their extravagant mansions had so much excess that they literally could not fathom that someone might have no food. No options. How could King Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette possibly be expected to effectively rule a people that they have absolutely no understanding of? That they have absolutely no connection to? The answer, of course, is that they couldn't. In order to be an effective representative or in order to be effectively represented, the people need a represent, to be represented by someone who is able to identify with their daily needs, their daily struggles, their joys, and their hopes. You cannot represent a people that you do not understand. In fact, we see that problem in our own Congress even today. As we come to this passage this morning, it's a passage that will call us to rejoice for you and Christ have a perfect representative. You and Christ have a perfect representative. This morning we're continuing in Hebrews 2. 
And we'll see how the incarnation of Jesus gives hope to sinners who have been saved by the grace of God. Our passage this morning continues the author of Hebrews' train of thought from the first nine verses in Hebrews 2, as we saw last week. Last week in Hebrews 2, verses 1 to 9, we saw that the first Adam failed. And in failing, he plunged humanity under the curse of sin and the condemnation of death. And yet we saw that that was not the end of the story. Where the first Adam failed, Jesus triumphed. And he was crowned with glory and with honor because he tasted death for everyone. Rejoice in that. Hebrews 2, 1 to 9 explains that in Christ, salvation is possible. Now as we come to Hebrews 2, verses 10 to 18, it builds on this great news, further explaining the benefits that are ours in Jesus, our superior Savior. And so this morning, as we work our way through this passage, we'll see the necessity of the incarnation, the power of the incarnation, and the result of the incarnation. The first thing we see is the necessity of the incarnation. The necessity of the incarnation. Verse 10 begins, For it was fitting for him, for whom all things are and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. For it was fitting. That word for connects our passage to the first nine verses of chapter 2, as we've already seen. Why was it necessary for Jesus to die? That's what we're going to go on to see here. For it was fitting. That word fitting is the idea of it was right, it was appropriate, it was the right response. In fact, it's, it's almost tied to the idea of it was necessary. For God to accomplish what God wanted to accomplish, this was necessary. This was fitting. This is the right response in, align, in, in, in aligning with who God is, his character and his plan. It was fitting. It was fitting for him, for whom all things are and by whom all things are. Clearly a reference there to the Father, God the Father. It was fitting for God to do this. This is the right response of a holy, sovereign, perfect God. It was fitting for him in bringing many sons to glory. It refers back to God's plan for man at creation, as we saw in 2.7. You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. And yet we saw last week how man has fallen short of that. And so it was fitting for God in order to bring many sons to glory. Ultimately now, in salvation. Really, this is the goal of the passage. God, wanting to bring many sons to glory, reacted in a certain way. This is the goal, to bring many sons to glory. This is God's plan, what he is seeking to accomplish. And so, if God wants to bring many sons to glory, what is the appropriate response? What must he do? It was fitting to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. It was fitting to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Who is this referring to? The captain of salvation is Jesus Christ. 
to make the captain. That word there is the idea of uh, captain, founder, author, source. He is the source of salvation. He is the author. He is the originator. Salvation is in him and only in him. So it was fitting for God to make Jesus perfect through suffering in order to bring many sons to glory. Now here's a question I think we need to pause on here. What does it mean that Jesus was made perfect through suffering? Does that mean that he was lacking something before? Is it perfect as in he needed to be made sinless? Obviously we know the answer to that is no. Jesus did not need to be made sinless because he is righteous. This is not perfect in person as in sinless. It's perfect in function as in he needed to be made a perfect representative. The incarnation positions Jesus to be a better savior and a perfect high priest. It's not that it makes him perfect, but it makes him qualified. Really what you see here is the goal to bring many sons to glory. The means is the perfection of the son. And the process, or the purpose, is that he might lead many to salvation. He made him perfect through suffering. By a chance meeting in 1547, Prince Edward VI of England, son of Henry VIII, came across a poor boy named Tom Canty in the streets. Immediately, Prince Edward was struck by the uncanny resemblance between himself and Tom, and so he invited Tom into the palace so he could get to know him better. And as these two got to know each other better, they, they hatched a plan You see, Prince Edward wanted to know what life was like on the outside. And Tom was tired of the difficulty of life on the outside. He wanted the ease of being a prince. They looked so much alike that they hatched this plan, we will switch places. So they did. Edward became Tom and Tom became Edward. Immediately... As Edward exits the palace, he's subjected to the harsh realities of the lower class. He goes home to an abusive father. He witnesses people burned at the stake on petty charges, unjustly flogged, and thrown into prison with no reason. There is no mercy and no care that is shown. Ultimately, over the course of time, Henry VIII dies. And before Tom is crowned king, Tom and Edward reveal what they have done. Based on his experience, Edward went on to be a good king who ruled with mercy. You may have already recognized that this story is the plot of Mark Twain's famous historical fiction novel, The Prince and the Pauper. It's a great story. I think it perfectly illustrates what we see in this passage. You see, in the book, Edward is a better king Because of the experience that he has. Because he understands the struggle and the pain of his people, he is able to represent them to the best of his ability. 
in the incarnation, Jesus is made a perfect representative because he understands. To properly represent man, man's representative must be man himself. Your heavenly Father in his divine sovereign knowledge knows that it was fitting that, Je- that, that it was fitting for Jesus to bring many sons to glory. He must be able to perfectly understand and represent them. To be a savior, Jesus must first be a brother. And this is good news for you. Because Jesus is a sympathetic savior. Because he's an experienced savior. Even this week, when you run back to the cross seeking forgiveness after looking at the images on that screen again, after promising yourself that last time was the last time, even as you run back again for the hundredth time for forgiveness, your Savior does not roll his eyes in disgust at you as he reaches down in mercy. Rather, he runs to you with understanding and with sympathy because he has been made perfect through suffering. And so even this week, run to him. Run and find forgiveness. Find hope to change. Find all that you need for life and godliness. For he has been made perfect through suffering that he might bring many sons to glory. The incarnation was necessary to bring many sons to glory. To be a savior, Jesus must first be a brother. Secondly, in this passage, in verse 11 to 16, we see the power of the incarnation. It was necessary to bring many sons to glory, and yet it was also powerful, as we see here. Verse 11 goes on to explain why Why was he made perfect through suffering? For both he who sanctifies, that is the idea tying back to being brought to glory, he who brings to glory and those who are brought to glory, he who sanctifies Jesus and those who are being sanctified, believers, are all of one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Saying, I will declare to your name, I will declare your name to my brothers in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praises to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I, the children of whom God has given me. These passages, uh, this first one, I will declare your name to my brethren. It's taken from Psalm 22, 22. Psalm 22 is a psalm that looks forward to the suffering of Messiah. The suffering of the coming promised one. By the time you get to verse 22, the one who has suffered and who has been resurrected, the resurrected Savior here, invites his brothers to join him in worshiping God. I would declare your name to my brothers in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you. Verse 13, I'll put my trust in him. And again, here am I, the children uh, whom God has given me. It's a reference to Isaiah 8, verses 17 and 18. Isaiah and his sons stand as evidence of God's faithfulness. But in both these passages, in Psalm 22 and Isaiah 8, the author of Hebrews here is focusing on the relation of Jesus to believers. Notice the language. It's the language of brothers. 
my children. Jesus' relation to believers is that of brother because he was made perfect through suffering. Because both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified of all of one. Again, to properly represent man, man's representative must be man himself. In fact, that's exactly what you see going on to verse 14. In as much, or to the same degree then, as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. He was made flesh and blood. In the incarnation, Jesus is fully man, as much as any man who has ever lived. He himself likewise shared in the same. That, or he was made fully man for this purpose, that through death he might destroy him who had the power over death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. He took on flesh, becoming fully man, in order to destroy and to release. Notice the twofold purpose there. That he might destroy him who had the power over death, that is the devil, and that he might release those who through fear of death were all their life subject to bondage. He might destroy. Jesus takes on flesh and embrace death in order to destroy the devil. To crush the head of the serpent. To free man from sin's curse and death's grip. In the cross, Jesus declares his power over the devil and over death. He destroys him who had the power over death. He releases those who through fear of death were subject to bondage. Brothers, the good news of this passage is that you are not living in the shadow of death if you are in Christ. But you are living in the shadow of the cross. And it's a cross that proclaims, do not fear death, for I have triumphed. The devil has been defeated. There is no fear in death. You are not subject to bondage, for I have freed you. For I have conquered. For I have brought many sons to glory because I was made perfect through suffering. Verse 16 shows then his relation to angels. Here once again the author of Hebrews kind of returns the idea at the beginning of this passage in 2.5 even back to chapter 1. The idea of man's unique relation to God. Indeed, he does not give aid to angels. It is not to angels that God sent his son. It is to man. He does give aid to the seed of Abraham. A reference back to all of God's promises. God fulfills his promises to man.
First, we see the necessity of the incarnation. In order to bring many sons to glory, Jesus must. He must be made perfect through sufferings. Secondly, we see the power of the incarnation. In the incarnation, he defeats the devil, freeing those who were subject to sin. Virginia Hall was a 35-year-old woman in 1941. She was living in German-occupied France. There's nothing particular intimidating about Virginia. In fact, she walked with a noticeable limp because she had lost her left leg in a hunting accident several years earlier. She was living in a culture where women did not have many rights. She was limited, not able to get around as much because of that crippled leg. And yet, those two things allowed her to play an important role in World War II. This quiet, crippled woman played a very important role in the Allies winning World War II. She organized resistance movements. She helped downed airmen, escaped, and other injured agents. She funneled highly classified German documents to the, England, to the English and the U.S. The Germans gave Virginia the nickname Artemis, and the Gestapo considered her the most dangerous of all Allied spies. A crippled woman is the most dangerous of all Allied spies. See, the reality is that Virginia's limitation in that culture as a woman and as a cripple those are the very things that gave her the power to deliver a death blow to the Germans. Those are the very things that put her in a position to accomplish her mission. Similarly, not only does the incarnation equip Jesus to be a perfect understanding savior, it empowered him, put him in position to crush the head of the serpent. And in putting him in that position to crush the head of the serpent, he delivers us from the power of sin and of death. So brothers and sisters, not only does your Savior stand ready to forgive you, but he has put you in a place where you can have victory in him. Death has been defeated. Sin has no more power. The devil has been defeated and sin has no more power over you. So when you are tempted to gossip, when you have no motivation to do what you know that you should do, when you are overcome with anxiety and you find your mind running to worry, remember that Jesus has triumphed. Remember that Satan has been defeated. Remember that you are free from the power and the penalty of sin. And choose victory. The incarnation is not a moment of weakness. It is the display of Jesus' power. It is a declaration of the love of God. The power of the incarnation. Finally, we see the result of the incarnation. The result of the incarnation. Therefore, verse 17. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brothers, brethren. Essentially, verse 17, the beginning of verse 17 here, sums up everything that we've seen in verses 2, 11 to 16. 
In all things he had to be made like his brethren. In all things. Comprehensive. He took on flesh, becoming fully man, and yet staying fully God. In all things he had to be made like his brethren. That, to this purpose, that he might be a merciful and a faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. As fully man and as fully God, Jesus is perfectly qualified and uniquely equipped to be a perfect high priest. In order to make propitiation for the sins of the people, Jesus disarms the devil and death by satisfying God's wrath. He made propitiation. He covered your sin by his death and his resurrection. He satisfied God's wrath for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. He's a perfect high priest. He is merciful and he is faithful because he was made in all things to be like his brethren. To be a perfect savior, he first must be a brother. And so he is a perfect high priest and he is a savior. Then he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He is a high priest, he is a savior, and he is a a helper. That he is able to aid those who are tempted. He is able to aid those who are tempted. In the summer of 2008, I met my wife Krista. We were both serving as counselors uh, at a camp in Michigan, Camp Kobiak. One of my responsibilities that summer was not just to counsel, but to be a lifeguard. I learned a lot about lifeguarding that summer. In fact, the first two weeks of of training, uh, when we were there, I spent most of my time out on the lake, swimming, training, learning all the things that I needed to know. Lifeguarding is not one of those jobs where you can just sit there and let your mind wander. Lifeguarding is a job where you need to be engaged, you need to be ready In fact, it's important that a lifeguard be present and prepared to help at a moment's notice. If you pay attention, you'll notice that at pools or at lakes, lifeguards are not positioned hundreds of yards off where they can have a vantage point and look down and see everything that's going on. They're positioned right up against the edge of the pool. They're positioned close to the lake. They need to be in a position where at a moment's notice they are ready with their bathing suits on, with their rescue buoy in hand. Ready at a moment's notice to give aid. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as we come to the end of this passage, we see that Jesus is a present help. Your Savior stands ready to forgive. He has crushed the head of the serpent. He has defeated sin and death. He's actively helping those who are facing temptation. Even this week, when you are tempted to lie to get out of a sticky situation, 
Your hope is not only in looking back to the cross and remembering what Jesus did, but you have a Savior who is presently helping. Cry out to the one who offers present help. When you are fighting addiction, when your marriage is falling apart because of selfish decisions, when you are tempted to disobey your parents, in whatever situation and ways you find yourself tempted this week, remember that in Christ you have a present help. Not just an eternal hope. You have an eternal hope, but you have a present help as well. So cry out to him. Pour out your heart to your loving Savior and your perfect high priest. So as you come to the end of this passage, it's a passage that calls us as sinners to rejoice. Rejoice because you have a high priest who is not unable to sympathize with your weaknesses. But one who... But but you have a merciful and a faithful high priest who is able to help you as you are tempted. Not only does the incarnation secure salvation for those who are in Christ, it equips you for success. In Christ, you have both a perfect high priest and a perfect Savior. Because he was made like his brethren in all things, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest and things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And so because Jesus is a perfect high priest, you must trust him. For he is your only hope. For eternity and for the present. You have a Savior who understands who has crushed the head of the serpent, who has freed you from the power of sin and death, and who stands ready to help you, a perfect high priest, a perfect savior, because he was a brother.